Ave podcast listeners, a quick notice before we begin today's episode. In our next recording session, Rhiannon and I will be recording a Q&A episode. So if you've got any questions that you'd like to ask about ancient Rome, about the podcast, about anything within reason, then please send them to us. You can go to our Facebook page, Emperors of Rome, where there's a pinned topic there. You can send us an email, emperorspodcast at gmail.com, or you can send us a tweet. We're also asking that if you've got a phone and can record yourself asking your question, then please send that through to us and we'll see if we can use it in the edit. So you've got about a week, so ask your questions now. And now for the podcast. Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a senior lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode LXII, Juvenal. Juvenal was a poet from the Silver Age of Latin literature and was one of the last and greatest satirical poets of the Roman Empire. He wrote five books and collectively they're known as the satires. They can be a brutal critique of life in ancient Rome, but his use of comedic expression and his tendency to exaggerate things has made interpreting them a field of debate. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Juvenal is a satirist. He is a poet and he lived in the late 1st century, early 2nd century CE. That's almost all we know about him. It's quite sad, really, in that... I don't know if other people feel this, but I feel that the later we get, it seems like we should have more information. That is generally true for emperors and some other important political characters. And we tend to have things like buildings and more inscriptions left about them, as well as more sources. But for authors, it doesn't seem to work out like that. Mm. So, for example, we know more about Virgil, who was around, you know, the turn of the first centuries BC, than we do about Juvenal. So even though Juvenal is 150 years later. So it doesn't work out quite as smoothly as we'd like there. Can we posit anything about him then? We can. We have to tread fairly carefully. We've got 16 poems by him. The Mm -hmm. 16th one is unfinished. We also have some ancient biographies. They're of very dubious value because they're very clearly based on information from the poems. Something that we should say about satire is that it's often in the first person. So the poem often has the word I in there. And these biographies clearly take that as biography. So it's like if you write a novel in the first person and somebody comes along in a few hundred years and thinks that is your life. Okay. So, you know, like Dickens did for David Copperfield. Obviously, that's not Dickens's life. Mm, It might mm. reflect some things about his life, but it's very dangerous to take those satires and to generate from that a life of juvenile. So one of the problems that we get with this, for example, is that the 15th satire is a satire that's set in Egypt, and it's about how awful the Egyptians are, according to this poem. Some of them are cannibals. And from that, there's an extrapolation that Juvenal was exiled to Egypt. Now, that's obviously not a very firm basis for that kind of analysis, that kind of outcome. The other part of the story that's put into that is that the fourth satire is all about Domitian and how terrible he is. He's a tyrant. So there's a a kind of extrapolation from that that he might have been exiled by Domitian. It's a lot of extrapolation. If somebody were writing an essay and using that as evidence, Mm. you'd say, not satisfactory evidence. (laughs) The biographies, one of them says that he was born in 55 CE, which might be true. It might be around then. But the earliest date that we can get from his poems, and this is something reliable, because if he knows it's happened, 
um, then it's already happened when he started writing. Well, it's actually about the death of Domitian. So the earliest event that he records is from 96 CE. Okay. So we know he's writing after that time. And the latest event that he talks about is actually from that 15th satire on Egypt, where he names the year in which he claims this thing happened, the cannibalism of the Egyptians. And he says that it was in the consulship of a particular guy who was consul in 127 CE. So he actually names the consul. He so says the consulship of Yunkus. Okay. And Yunkus was a consul yep, we, in that year. He's, yeah, we he's know not that writing from... ancient Roman science fiction. No, no, no. no. Okay. This is, no, <laughs> unless he was foreseeing the future in ways we can't tell, then he was still around in 127. We know that from consular records. Okay. So we, we can say that he's writing between 96 and 127, maybe outside of that. Some of the biographies say that he survived Hadrian. So there you go. He's kind of from around Domitian to Hadrian, put him somewhere in the middle of all of that. How popular was he? Do we know something about his reception? Well, we do. We know that he is mentioned by Marshall. So we know that some of his fellow poets know about him. Um, And at this point, of course, we should refer back to our podcast on Marshall. Yes. So go listen to that if you don't know who Marshall is. We need to do another Marshall podcast, I think. Yeah, well, there's lots of Marshall, so we could do. Marshall obviously doesn't write satire as such, although you can see some connections between what he's writing, which is funny and tends to poke fun at people, with what Juvenal is doing. But apart from that, there's not an awful lot and not many people mention him afterwards. And Mm. really, Juvenal's reputation comes back in fairly recent centuries. So he's very highly regarded in the 18th century. And in fact, people like Samuel Johnson model their own satires on his very directly. Mr. The Dictionary. Yes, exactly. Well done. I've watched Blackadder. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great source for historical knowledge. Uh, So he's very highly regarded in the 18th century when satire in English and also in other European languages, but particularly in English, is making a comeback and he's seen as a model. And since then, he has been very highly regarded so that if I refer back to my school days or at least my undergraduate days... There were judgments made about periods of Roman literature. And Mm. I think I've mentioned before that the age of Virgil and Horace is sort of seen as the golden age. People don't talk in those terms anymore. And it was sort of dying out even by the time I was an undergraduate. But Juvenal, because he's later, is sort of in the silver age. Nevertheless, along with Tacitus, he was considered one of the writers worth reading. Yes. Marshall was not, by the way. But that's that's all a contemporary... Uh, yeah, interpretation. very little from antiquity. Yeah. He may not have been well regarded at all. And as you say, well, Marshall wasn't well regarded in more recent times for a while, but he seemed to be, you know, the headline act back in ancient Rome. <laughs> so, so times change. At least he claims. Yeah, well. Okay, so, uh, so can you explain to me, what is Roman satire then? Okay, well, it's a bit like our satire, but not quite. So when we think of satire, we think of something that's funny, that pokes fun of people, perhaps particularly politicians. So it might have an analytical or critical point to it. It's not sitcom. It's got a target usually. Mm. Roman satire partakes of some of this, and our satire kind of grows out of it. But it's also a very specific poetic genre. It has to be written in a specific meter. And that meter is hexameter, which means there are six feet per line. 
which I'm sure you remember from when we talked about Virgil, is also the meter of epic. Mm. And in a way, epic poetry, very grand, usually about mythological characters, wars, founding cities, is the kind of polar opposite of satire, which deals with often with ordinary events, ordinary people, not big names. If it does deal with big names, it's pointing at them and saying, you're a disgrace in some way, right? You're immoral. You haven't done the right thing. Couldn't that get you banished? Yes. And actually, that's a problem (laughs) for someone like Juvenal writing satire in the second century. So the Roman tradition of satire grew out of the Republic. Yeah. And satire is often considered the form of poetry which is wholly Roman. The Romans actually talk about it like that. In other words, it's not a genre that they've borrowed from the Greeks. Now, the the Greeks had poetry which pointed the finger at people. So it, it has connections with some Greek poetry. But as a genre of poetry, as a form... It is the one that is Roman. And it's also very much concerned with the city. It's very metropolitan Mm. and the city of Rome. Often the satire is set in the city of Rome. Mm. And it's often about the kind of down and dirty events of people like freedmen, people who are scrabbling around for money and dinners and invitations to dinners. So it's kind of the, the, in terms of social class, it's the flip side of epic. And there's a bit of a paradox that it's written in the same meter. So it can sound very grand to the Romans, yet it's not about the same kind of subject matter. And if it deals with epic material, it's often in an undercutting way. For example, Satire 15, which is not the only one I've read. I have read all of them. But Satire 15 has a a few lines near the beginning talking about Odysseus or Ulysses in Latin. It's about how if he'd come to dinner with you now and told his tale, his fantastical tale of his travels, you'd just think he was lying. Mm. Okay, so fantastical things can happen, but we don't believe them, i.e. in Egypt recently there's been a case of cannibalism. So it uses epic material, but often to poke fun at how overblown and ridiculous it is. But a a lot longer than other examples of Roman poetry that we've seen, um, but is it as long as an epic? What sort of length are we talking about here? By no means. Um, As as I say, Juvenal wrote 16 Mm. and the last one unfinished. And they can be under 100 lines. The longest one is about 600 lines. They're conventionally divided into five books. And book two is just poem six, satire six, which is the one that's six or 700 lines long. So a whole book of the poetry is 700 lines. And And in fact, it all fits into one lerb, along with another satirist called Perseus. I, I take it Perseus didn't write much. Perseus wrote five satires, so yeah. a little less than Juvenal, and, yeah. and he's he's actually an Aronian poet a little earlier. So yeah, you can fit them all into one lerb, and remember that that includes the Latin and the translation mm. and some intro material too. So it's not nearly as long as epic, no. If you have to read one the night before an exam and you've got a choice between satire and epic, you'd have to pick satire. <laughs> <laughs> Who did satire originate with then? What's the earliest example that we've got of it? The Romans thought, and presumably they knew, mm. that the founder of satire was a man called Lucilius. We have very little of Lucilius left. We have fragments quoted by other people. Uh, he is a mid-Republican one of the earliest um, writers of Roman literature. And he wrote satire that, according to later Romans, was very pointed. It had targets and it went for them and he named names. And he would name the names of major politicians and just go for them. He didn't mind having enemies 
He presumably had a backer who would protect him. And this is often taken as a paradigm of what you could do in the Republic that you couldn't do anymore in the imperial period, which to a certain extent must have been true. Mm. Um, Although presumably, if you made the wrong enemies, even in the Republic, you could get into trouble. Uh, And this is something that Juvenal actually refers to and other satirists do as well, to say that they can't be quite as aggressive, quite as pointed as Lucilius could because they're living in different times. Uh, And Juvenal refers to it, it's a little bit sad at the end of his first satire, where he says, but whenever Lucilius blazes and roars as if with drawn sword, the hero whose mind is chilled with crime goes red and his heartstrings sweat with silent guilt. So that's what satire should do. Then comes rage and tears. That's a very famous line from Juvenal, that there's rage. You make the person angry, who is your target, and then they're ashamed of it, the tears. Once you've got your helmet on, it's too late for second thoughts about fighting. So he actually uses a battle image. Once you're in battle, you've got to take on the combat. That's what the person is imagined as saying to him. Then Juvenal, the eye of the poem, says in reply, Okay, then. I'll see what I can get away with saying against the people whose ashes are covered by the Flaminian and the Latin roads. In other words, I'm going to have a go at the dead. They're yeah. safer. Yep. So that, that's quite sad in a way that you can no longer do what Lucilius did. You can no longer point a finger at the living. You have to be careful. You have to couch it in different terms. And one of Juvenal's main targets, as a whole satire against him, is Domitian. He also has a go at Nero. Nero's very long gone by the time Juvenal's writing. So it does say something about second century culture. You know, he never mentions Trajan and Hadrian. They're out of bounds. All right. So let's wade into his satires a little bit then. So what is Juvenal telling us about the Rome that he lives in? He writes a lot about Rome. And as I say, that's typical of satire. But I think perhaps Juvenal more than anybody. And he has a whole satire about Rome and how terrible it is. His third satire, Mm. which is a conversation with a friend of his. And it's set mostly in the voice of his friend Umbricius. His name means shadow man, ghost man. And he's leaving Rome. He can't take it anymore. And at the beginning of the poem, Juvenal says, oh, I'm really sad to see my friend. He's going off to Cumae, which is on the Bay of Naples. He wants the quiet life. Nice. It's like a... I don't know, a sea change kind of uh, parallel. And the rest of the satire, the 300 lines of it, is Umbricius laying out why he's leaving, what he can't stand about Rome. It's too noisy, it's corrupt, especially, and this comes up elsewhere in the voice of the narrator, you can't get ahead as an honest person in Rome. You have to be deceitful. The people who get ahead are these upstarts, and particularly upstart Greeks, it's basically a racist poem about Greeks, we would say. We, we would call it some kind of ethnic hatred poem. Uh, <laughs> so some of the famous lines from Satire 3 are when Juvenal says, or rather in the voice of Umbricius, he says, I can't stand a Greek city, a Graecam urbem. Mm. I can't stand this anymore. Greeks can turn their hand to anything says Umbricius. They're kind of jack of all trades. If you want them to be a flatterer, they'll be a flatterer. If you want them to be a dancer, they're able to do that. I can't do all of that, so I can't get ahead here. And there's very much this persona, which Juvenal himself adopts elsewhere, this idea, which is not entirely untimely, of kind of entitlement that these characters have, that they're freeborn Romans. Why are they not being given money and position? 
other people are coming in and taking it with all of their talents and their deceitfulness and mm. their abilities. Now, it's thought by some scholars that we're meant to laugh at this character, that we're meant to see through it and laugh at them. So it's not necessarily a hateful poem about Greeks. It's very hard to know the tone because these poems would have been performed originally and you can do a lot with tone. If they had some kind of antipathy towards Greeks, perhaps they would have just read it straight. Yeah. However, if they were able to see that this character was kind of ridiculous, uh, for one thing, he shows off a lot of Greek learning, as most educated Romans did, then perhaps it's the character himself who's being satirised. So is he, is he maybe in some way having a, a dig at Hadrian? Hadrian, the lover of Greek culture. It would be hard not to see it like that, although this is an early satire, so it, oh, okay. might, be pre, it might be pre-Hadrianic. It probably is. Yes. Certainly it would be hard to reread that poem once Hadrian is emperor without thinking of him. One of the things that, about this poem that people do try to make contemporary relevance out of them is that at one point the narrator says, you know, there's always building work going on. It's always dangerous. It's noisy and you're tripping over bits of stone that are being put into place. That is sometimes thought to be uh, a bit of a dig at Trajan, at all the works that went into his new forum, his massive forum mm, that he's mm. building with the column and the libraries and the markets behind it. That would have been a lot of upheaval in Rome. And there might be a contemporary reference there. But as you can see, he never mentions Trajan. He doesn't mention the place. It's in somebody else's voice. And they're just saying very generally, there's always building going on. Yeah. So he's kind of hiding behind a lot of layers there. All right. So he's had a dig at the Greeks. Uh what else do his poems tell us about contemporary Rome? Well, one of the things that he inveighs against is that there's, you, you know, we have to think about these poems being read out in public. But in the very first satire, he talks about there being loads of bad poetry. In satire one, he has a very famous statement where he says, you ask me why I'm writing this. Well, here's a list of things that really annoy me about contemporary society one of them is if i have to stand for hours and listen to somebody else's goddamn epic what particular god did he damn <laughs> <laughs> was that was that rihanna and that's me <laughs> that's me trying not to swear <laughs> he actually talks about telephus or orestes so mythological characters orestes is part of that whole house of atreus connected to the trojan war myth um so people are writing epics based on this and obviously you know Virgil is the high point of epic epic could be really overblown and bloated potentially and probably we've lost a lot of those terrible epics that he's having a go at he says no one knows his own house better than I know the grove of Mars and the cave of Vulcan near the Aeolian cliffs right I'm sick of hearing about these mythological areas and what goes on in them what the winds are up to which ghost Seacus is torturing the origin of the other guy waltzing off with that filched golden mini fleece that's Jason. Jason. <laughs> <laughs> the size of the ash trees hurled by Monicus. And then some of them are more obscure myths than others. He talks about these nonstop reciters. If I have to stand in the sun and hear this any longer, then I'm going to go crazy. And he says, with these kind of conditions, and this is the famous line, poem one, line 30, it's difficult not to write satire. Mm -hmm. So there's this persona <laughs> of, I'm just bursting with these things I need to complain about. It's a very angry persona, at least in the early satires. I've been quoting, I should acknowledge this, from the Lerb, which the translation is reasonably new by Susanna Braund. And she also has a book, her, her earliest book is called Beyond Anger, which is about juvenile satires after the first six, mm. where he no longer has quite that same kind of persona. It 
becomes more philosophical. So it does change. But in the early ones, which in some ways are the most popular, more popular ones, because I think people like to see that rage expressed, we do get a lot of that, that seething anger. I, can, I just can't contain myself any longer. I need to let this out via this poetry. Women? Women. Okay. I mentioned that the poems are divided into five books and that book two is just one poem. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that is Satire 6, and Satire 6 is long. Satire 6 is the longest poem. It's a satire on women, or to be more accurate, it's a satire on marriage. And it starts off by saying, I can't believe my friend's getting married. What is he thinking? Here's all the things that are wrong with women. Wow. And it's 600 lines yeah. of women are terrible. <laughs> Don't hold back. <laughs> I actually love this poem, but <laughs> it's not about self-hatred. And again, it may well be that there's a kind of distance between the persona, the mask that the satirist's putting on, and the reality. Let's hope so. It's got a very funny beginning. The narrator says, well, I believe at some time in the past, in the golden age, women were chaste and they were good. But he paints this picture of a kind of mountainous, hairy wife. That's when they were chased, when they were very primitive and lived in caves. <laughs> Hairier than their acorn-belching husbands, he says. <laughs> Women were only chased in a very kind of primitive, not very attractive past. Now they're all sophisticated, they're all adulterous, they're all immoral, they're all letting you down in various ways. I think if this satire were to be performed, as it could be performed in a kind of one-man show today, you would probably see the narrator as somebody who has not fared well with women. A bit of sexual frustration. Yeah, and, and a lot of bitterness indeed. He has a go at all kinds of different aspects of women, including even the ones who are clever, intellectual women. Oh, my God, they'll be quoting Virgil at you all day. <laughs> the blue stockings, as they're sometimes translated in older translations. The person who's getting married, interestingly, this links up with some of our other stuff, is given the name Posthumus, which means... Means somebody's it's, passed away. Yeah, yeah. It, it should be. Or in origin, it's a name given to boys if they're born after their father has died. Okay. All right. So. Oh, that sounds familiar. Because Agrippa Posthumus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Julia's third son. So the fact that he's got this name that means already dead is a link to what we're meant to think about the idea of getting married. Mm. Okay, it's a hint. Yeah. You know, he goes on and on and on about this. This is the one he can't contain himself about most. But one of my favorite parts of it, although it's really nasty, is, well, there's a warning here, it is nasty, is about, is about a specific case, famous people but dead people, Claudius's third wife, Messalina. Mm. He talks about how it doesn't happen to just ordinary men, right? Women are going to let you down, whoever you are. It also happened to people in the imperial palace. It happened to Claudius. Look at what Claudius put up with. When his wife realized her, her husband was asleep, she would leave with no more than a single maid as her escort. Preferring a mat to her bedroom in the palace, she had the nerve to put on a nighttime hood, the whore empress. He calls wow. her the whore yeah. empress, and that is an accurate translation. He calls her meritrix, which means prostitute sex worker. Meritrix Augusta. The two words are put together in the Latin, mm. really stressing the juxtaposition of those two things that shouldn't go together. Because the, the story that Messalina went out at night and actually worked in a brothel 
he talks about this being the womb from which Britannicus was born. Mm. And, you know, he really wants you to feel disgusted by her behavior. And she's sort of a paradigm of all women. If the highest levels of society are doing this, then what is there? There's no hope for everybody else, really. She brought back to the emperor's couch the stench of the brothel. Ah. Nasty stuff. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, it's, it can be hard to read at times. One of the interesting things about this poem is that nobody's sure how long it is because in my lerb here, it has 661 lines. But in the 19th century, I think I'm right about the time period, they found another 34 lines of it. Yeah, right. Somebody found it in what? the Bodleian in Oxford. So it's called the Oxford Fragment. Con- consecutive lines? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's talk about where to stick them. But oh, in, where to stick them, yeah. In, in this particular but one. But it, it's a consecutive chunk, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's 34 lines, a passage that makes sense together. That makes me think that it, there was censorship somewhere along the lines. Quite possibly. Somewhere along the lines. <laughs> Thank you, I'll be here all week. Were they 34 particularly racy lines? And Yes. There's a lot of racy lines in this poem, as there are in a few of the other poems. Yeah. In fact, I've got this great commentary by a man called Mayer from, I think it was published in 1899, mm. two volumes. And it's brilliant. And it's before computers. And he just knows the whole of Latin literature. And he can point to all the parallels. But he does not include satires 2, 6, and 9. So they're the ones everyone goes to read because they're the dirty ones. Yeah, okay. Okay, so six is the one on women and he will not put a commentary on on that in there. This one is actually about... Sorry. Yeah, this one is about... the, The Oxford fragment is about characters called pathics or kinidae. Let's use the word that we used before with Marshall. It's about kinidae. In other words men who enjoy the passive position in homosexual sex. It's about how even they are a danger in Mm. the household. So this poem is kind of obsessed with how everybody's a danger. You think you're safe leaving them with somebody who's not interested in women. Well, you're not. They're going to be a danger too. So it's a really paranoid poem in many ways, but a very interesting one in terms of the kind of attitudes towards women that at least might have existed. I'm quite sympathetic with this idea that there's a persona going on here in terms of the narrator, but I don't think that means that it doesn't tell us anything about contemporary attitudes, because if it were just utterly outrageous, if it made no sense to the Romans at all, if they had nothing to connect to, if there weren't the potential for these attitudes, I don't think it would be funny. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be worth writing. Mm. So is there a danger of taking a, a satire like Juvenal's work seriously then for taking it as it reads? There is very much. This is being done less and less, but in the past, and for very good motives, people have wanted to know about what happens in ordinary people's lives. All right, You want to know beyond the big names. Mm. And satire deals with the down and dirty of everyday life. It deals with material stuff like food. Juvenal in particular complains about banquets he goes to where the, the patrons mean and offers different grades of food. So there's better wine for the people that he regards as better people. And Juvenal's off on some distant table with the vinegar, gut rot wine and inferior food. And that may have happened. Maybe there were terrible banquets like that and socially inept people. Um, but it, it is something that seems to come up in comedy. So it may be a comic trope. Mm. And that's the problem. 
to make a modern parallel, you wouldn't want to take a sitcom and say that represents our everyday life. It might represent aspects of it. Again, you want to connect with it for yes. people to find it funny. Yeah. But you wouldn't say that's what goes on in everybody's household. And that's the danger with Juvenal, apart from the fact that he may well be adopting a persona. So he doesn't necessarily represent an everyday average Joe of Rome. Also, he may be picking particular situations which are tropes of comic poetry, which are topics that come up, the kind of thing we see a lot of. And Juvenal talks about his own poetry as a farrago, which seems to mean a kind of porridge, mixture of stuff. Okay, so that's what satire is, really. It's sort of mixed together, talking about the high and low together, talking about ordinary things like food and then dipping into mythological characters. Mm. And that's kind of why it's so fascinating and full of info, but also why you can't just take it as a documentary on Roman life. So finally, is there any famous quotes that we should take from Juvenal? There are quite a few, actually, that have just gone into ordinary speech often about Rome, but not always. I think the most famous one is bread and circuses, Mm. which we take to mean people in power use this to kind of keep the people sweet, domesticated and tame. And that's exactly how Juvenal meant it. It's from his 10th satire where he's talking about how Roman's life is kind of empty. It was redone by Samuel Johnson in a poem called The Vanity of Human Wishes. And he talks exactly about people being kept kind of complacent if they're just offered food and entertainment, bread and circuses, panamet kirkenses. He's also got some famous quotes that I think have quite contemporary relevance. Well, I guess that one does too. The line, who will watch the watchers, who will guard the guardians. That's his. That's one of his. I think we use it when we suspect that people in power, people with authority aren't to be trusted. Mm. He's actually using it about people who might keep an eye on women, your wife. Oh, right. They might have it away with your wife. So it's much more specific and domestic in Juvenal's case. And the really famous one, I think, is he says, let there be a healthy mind in a healthy body. A much more positive one. Yes. That comes from Juvenal too. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Senior Lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in iTunes. Please give it a review or rating because they help us and they make us feel appreciated. And hey, you should always show a podcast that you love them. You can like the Emperors of Rome podcast on Facebook and join in the conversation about this episode. And you can also follow myself and Rhiannon Evans on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. We'll have a Q&A episode coming out soon before we return with our next emperor in February. So until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. <laughs>